we welcome you to the Tabernacle Podcast, brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit our website, tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. You can find other sermons like this one on Apple Podcast, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. It is our prayer that God has used this message to be an encouragement to your heart. Let's take our Bibles, and if you would go with me uh, this morning to the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and uh, find, if you would, chapter number 21, 2 Samuel chapter number 21, after a long uh, hiatus of our study of the life of David, we return, and we have four chapters remaining in the book of 2 Samuel to cover. We'll cover just a little bit of 1 Kings in the closing days of David's life, and then also we'll look in the book of 1 Chronicles and the record of David's activity to prepare for the construction of the temple. David was a man after God's own heart. It was his desire to build the temple. And uh, if you'll remember, the prophet immediately said to him, do what is in your heart. And then after God spoke further to the prophet, the prophet came back and said, David, you're not going to build this house. God's going to build you a house meaning that God was going to establish the throne of David, and through his lineage, his descendants would come uh, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, a great promise that God made to David. And David is a uh, really a uh, dominant, in some ways, character in the Old Testament. Uh, his life is recorded, as I said, in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and also uh, in the book of the Chronicles. Uh, he is mentioned uh, in, throughout the New Testament. He is the author of many of the Psalms. So David is an important character for us to study. And God used him to speak to us in, in many ways. So we return to this study this morning in 2 Samuel uh, chapter number 21. I want you to read some things with me and uh, note them, if you would, please, as we're reading along. We'll read verses 1 through 14. Uh, The Word of God says, Then there was a famine in the days of David three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, and the children of Israel had sworn unto them. And Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. Wherefore David said unto the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And wherewith shall I make the atonement, that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said unto him, We will have no silver nor gold of Saul, nor of his house, neither for us shalt thou kill any man in Israel. And he said, What ye shall say, that will I do for you. 
And they answered the king, the man that consumed us and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the coasts of Israel. Let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them upon the or up, rather, under the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. But the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bare unto Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the, uh, the Maholathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the hill before the Lord. And they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. And Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for her upon the rock from the beginning of harvest until the water dropped upon them out of heaven and suffered neither birds of the air to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night. And it was told David that what Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, had done. And David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, which had stolen them from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them, when the Philistines had slain Saul in Gilboa. And he brought up from thence the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son. And they gathered the bones of them that were hanged. And the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son buried they in the country of Benjamin in Zelah, in the sepulcher of Kish, his father. And they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God was entreated for the land. I want to speak to you on this subject this morning, seeking justice in an unjust world. Seeking justice in an unjust world. Let's pray together and ask God by his spirit to speak to us. Our Father, we thank you for your word today. And we pray that you would use your word in our lives. Give us understanding. Holy Spirit, help me as I preach today. Fill me with thyself. Empower me and enable me to communicate your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's really quite a tragic scene that, that we have before us. Uh, we have a famine that plagues the land for a period of three years. No doubt during the time of the famine, the people prayed to God and asked God to send the rain, but none fell. But finally, David the king inquired of the Lord. Perhaps he should have done that, no doubt, much earlier. But after three years, he inquired of the Lord, what is the purpose of the famine? And God told him the purpose of the famine was because of Saul and his bloody house, meaning his murderous house. It was the judgment of God upon the nation for the blood of the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were not the peop among the people of Israel. They were Amorites who 
lived in the land of Canaan. We were introduced to them in the book of Joshua and the ninth chapter. And I'd encourage you to read that. It's quite an interesting account of how the Gibeonites who were dwelling in the land, they realized that the children of Israel had come into the land, that they were conquering all of the Canaanite nations. And so uh, they pretended uh, to have traveled a great distance to meet with the Israelites. They sent a group of people and uh, their clothes were tattered and worn and they took moldy bread and they took uh, empty vessels and they said, we, we, we come from a far country and here's the evidence of it. Look at us and look at our provisions. Uh, we, we've heard about you, we've heard about your God, and we want to make a covenant with you. We, we want to coexist with you. Well, the men of Israel were deceived, and uh, they made a covenant uh, with the Gibeonites. And Joshua entered into the covenant. We will not destroy you. We'll make a league with you. We'll, we'll even protect you from the enemies. Well, a few days later, they found out that the Gibeonites had not come from a far country. They found out that they had been tricked. But because they had made an oath, an oath that they swore unto the Lord to protect the Gibeonites, well, they could not drive them out of the land. And so the Gibeonites lived among the Israelites. They lived as the servants of the Israelites. And what we find here in this chapter is that Saul, who was uh, an impatient, angry, self-willed man, he decided that one day he was going to get rid of them. He had no regard for the covenant that had been made, and he sought to destroy them. Well, after his death and in the reign of David, there came a time when there was the famine that fell. And God tells David the reason for the famine. It's because of Saul's murderous activity. Well, David then is trying to figure out what to do. How can he solve this problem? How can he make an atonement? That's the word that is used here uh, with the Gibeonites. So he calls the Gibeonites to himself, and he says, tell us what we need to do to fix this situation. The Gibeonites said, I don't want your money. We don't want your money. And we don't want violence. So we don't want gold and we don't want violence. We're not full of vengeance, but we want justice. Send seven sons of Saul that we might hang up before the Lord. In other words, they were executed and their bodies were hung for display. Really a, a gruesome scene. And so two, two sons of Saul were sent there and five of his grandsons were sent to the Gibeonites. Well, the Bible tells us that there was a mother. Her name is Rizpah. She is the concubine of Saul, the mother of two of the boys that was killed. And when her sons were hung up, she shuddered, obviously, at the thought of their death, but also at the shameful way that their bodies would be displayed and the elements that they would be subject to. You see, it was a dreadful, shameful thing for a Hebrew, an Israelite, to have their body remain unburied. She wanted them to at least receive a proper burial. And night and day, 
week after week, month after month, from the beginning of the barley harvest, which would have been in April, until the time of the draw, of the of the falling of the rain, which would have typically fallen in the fall. She protected her boys night and day from the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David heard about it, and after he heard about it, he sent his messengers to go gather the bones of Saul and his sons that were slain in the battle at Mount Gilboa. Remember Saul and his sons, after they were killed, the Philistines took them back to Bethshan and they hung their bodies up. They put them on display. They wanted to bring reproach to Israel. But the men of Jabesh Gilead covenanted together and they went and they stole away the bodies of Saul and his sons and they buried them. Well, now David is bringing their bones back and he's collecting the bones of these boys that were killed in an act of compassion toward Rizpah and toward the house of Saul. Well, this passage certainly has a lot for us to deal with, doesn't it? But I think this is the theme, without doubt, the theme of the problem of justice in an unjust world. And that's a theme we can relate to, isn't it? We hear a lot in our world about justice. In fact, in the last few years, I imagine we've heard more about justice, social justice, all types of justice that is needed and all all the ills of the past being corrected by a, 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 a new group of leadership and philosophy uh, here moving forward in the future. We hear a lot about it. But with all the talk about justice, I think justice is in short supply, don't you? I mean, when you see what's happening in our country, the violence, the bloodshed, the contempt of humanity for one another, the hatred, the anger, the divisiveness, the celebration of iniquity, when you see all of that happening, perhaps like me, you begin to question, how did this happen? And how is it going to be fixed? Well, there's only one way it's going to be fixed. That's through Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can fix it. And we have a group of people today who tell us that they have the knowledge of how to fix the problem, but the more they try to fix it, the worse it gets. And so as we live in this world, we live in a world that is seeking justice, but it is an unjust world. Now, we learned some lessons here, and I want to give them to you. There are four of them this morning. I hope you'll write them down. The first lesson that we learn here is that judgment is inescapable. Judgment is inescapable. The Bible says in verse 1, there was a famine in the days of David three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, it is for Saul and for his bloody house because he slew the Gibeonites. Now, I'm sure that when this happened, by the way, Scripture does not record uh, when it happened. 
We just know it happens because God tells us here. But I'm sure that when it happened, there were some who might have said to Saul, Saul, you shouldn't do this. We've made a covenant with the Gibeonites. But Saul didn't care. He was self-willed. He was looking for political points, and the Gibeonites would give him a bump in the polls. So he sought to destroy them. And a famine now has resulted. Years later, there's a famine for three years. I want you to think about the people who suffered and died in a famine that lasted three years. I want you to think about the Gibeonites who trusted in the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel that was to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. The Gibeonites had come under their care. They had entrusted them, but now their king turned against them. Think of the bloodshed of the Gibeonites. Notice what the Gibeonites said concerning Saul in verse number five. The Bible says they answered the king, that's David, and they said the man, they wouldn't even mention his name, the man that consumed us and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the coasts of Israel. Saul's mission was to abolish, obliterate the Gibeonites. He was a murderous and bloody man. And Saul showed absolutely no respect for the covenant that the children of Israel had made. Now, there's a problem that God has with this, and I want you to go with me to the book of Numbers, chapter 35. Would you turn there with me? Numbers, chapter 35. You see, Saul may have thought he got away with it. Those who partook in the slaughter may have thought they had gotten away with it. The men of Israel, perhaps, thought they had gotten away with it, but they hadn't. Judgment is inescapable. Notice in verse number 30 of Numbers 35. Numbers 35 and verse 30, who killeth any person, whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses. But one witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. Do you know that when you take a life, you take something that God created? God made man in his image for his glory. So when you take a life, you are sinning against God. You are robbing God of the glory of his creation. You are hurting someone that God loves and that God made in his image. And God takes the crime of murder very seriously. And he requires that the murderer who shed the blood of the innocent atone for that through his own blood. In Genesis chapter number six, we see that God looked upon the earth and he saw the wickedness of man. And the Bible tells us that men were corrupt before the Lord and the earth was filled with violence. In fact, if you read chapter six, you'll see the emphasis on the violence of the days of Noah. And God was so grieved by the violence and the crime and the murder and the wickedness that he said, I'm going to destroy man from the earth. And he sent a flood and only eight souls survived the flood. That were the eight souls that got on board the ark. Noah, his wife, 
his three sons, and their wives. After Noah got off the ark, after the flood had come, God established human government. And God said to Noah, Noah, if someone murders someone, then that blood will be required by the hand of the murderer. And this this law, this principle that God put into effect is enumerated again in Numbers chapter 35. He says, the murderer shall be put to death. Look at verse 31. Moreover, you shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer which is guilty of death, but he shall, he shall be surely put to death. Verse 33. So ye shall not pollute the land wherein ye are. For blood it defileth the land, and the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. God says the land will be polluted by the blood of the victims of murder. And the only way to cleanse the land is to require blood of the murderer himself. We understand that God sees the oppressor. God saw what happened. God remembered it. And God brought judgment as a result of it. As we think about the unrestrained wickedness and violence that's on display in our country, do you ask the question that I often ask, how in the world did this happen? What is going on? Well, I will tell you, our nation's under the judgment of God. We have leaders who are sworn to protect us, who turned a blind eye to violence and crime. We have anarchy in our streets. We have a lot of talk about justice, but there is none for the victims of crime. The blood of 60 million aborted children cries out. Just this week, our state house and our state senate passed a law that restricted abortion. But once a mother goes beyond 12 weeks, she cannot have an abortion, if I understand the law correctly. The law in North Carolina was that you could up to a 24-week period at six months in. So in an attempt to curb abortion, the state house and state senate said, we're going to limit it to 12 weeks. Now, I believe the Bible is the word of God. I believe that God made man in his image, and I believe that all abortion should be, is wrong. It is wrong in the eyes of God, and it should be illegal in a God-fearing nation. But we don't any longer live in a God-fearing nation. By the way, before you get too carried away and think I'm making a political statement, this is not a political statement. This is a moral statement. This is a biblical truth. It doesn't matter to me if we have a Republican governor or a Democrat governor. If they believe in abortion, I stand against that policy. The problem in our day is so much of morality has been reduced to a political argument. 
And that's designed intentionally so to silence God's people and especially to silence preachers in pulpits. Now, our governor vetoed that bill. He didn't want any restriction to abortion. And then the House and Senate overrode his veto, and I'm grateful that they did. It's not a complete victory by any means, but it is a step in the right direction. This is how our governor responded to the override of his veto. Strong majorities of North Carolinians don't want right-wing politicians in the exam room with women and their doctors, which is even more understandable today after several Republican lawmakers broke their promises to protect women's reproductive freedom. Notice the language, how deceptive it is. You see, Satan is a master at deception. He really knows how to use words, doesn't he? And he obviously is behind the death of innocent children. The governor goes on to say, for the last two weeks, Republican sponsors of this abortion ban have strenuously argued that it is much less restrictive than we warned. So we will now do everything in our power to make sure that's true. North Carolinians now understand that Republicans are unified in their assault on women's reproductive freedom, and we are energized to fight back on this and other critical issues facing our state. I will continue doing everything I can to protect abortion access in North Carolina because women's lives depend on it. What a load of baloney. What about the lives of the children who never got to breathe God's air? Well, thanks be to God, we know where they are. They're with Jesus in heaven. I want you to know that the land is polluted. The blood of those babies cries out. The bloodshed of the murdered victims in our nation and the crime cries out to a holy God. And judgment is inescapable. And judgment is already here. We're living in Romans chapter 1. God gave them up to uncleanness. God gave them up to vile affections. And God has given them over to reprobate minds. The evidence is all around us. Judgment is inescapable. Lesson number two, justice is imperfect. Now, let me qualify that statement. We're not talking about God's justice. We're talking about man's. Look in verse 3. Wherefore David said unto the Gibeonites, <clears throat> excuse me, what shall I do for you, and wherewith shall I make the atonement that ye may bless the inheritance of the Lord? So the Gibeonites answered David, We don't want money. We will have no, we will have no silver nor gold of Saul. We're not trying to gain money here. We don't want the gold. We don't nor his house. We don't want his power. We don't want his, his wealth. 
Neither for us shalt thou kill any man in Israel. We do not want anarchy in the streets. We do not want murder. We do not want to exact our vengeance. And he said, what? You shall say, that will I do for you. And they answered the king, the man that consumed us, that devised against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the coasts of Israel, let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. And the king said, I will give them. They wanted justice, and so they wanted the men of the house of Saul to pay for the crimes of Saul. You see, David had a responsibility here. His responsibility was to execute justice. I don't know that this is the perfect solution for it. In fact, we find that David turned to God to find out why the famine had occurred, but we do not see that God reveals to David the answer to the problem or that David bothered to inquire. What we do here is that David goes to the Gibeonites and says, what will we do to make you happy? To atone. Well, nothing would make them happy, but at least to bring a sense of justice. And so this is what was prescribed. By the way, government has a responsibility to protect its citizens. God designed government in the following way. Let me read it to you. Romans chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. In verse 4, he says, For he, that is the governor, the ruler, the king, the authority, he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword. That's the sword of justice. He beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. You see, David was charged with the responsibility of seeking justice and carrying out the acts that were required to bring justice to the situation. But it's imperfect. Because these boys who had nothing to do with it are the ones who are paying the price. By, by the way, our sin heaps troubles upon our children and others who are innocent. And we need to remember that. Now, in bringing these sons to uh, the Gibeonites, David remembered his covenant with Jonathan. Look at verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Remember David and Jonathan had made a covenant together. And Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, and therefore David spares him. He doesn't send Mephibosheth to pay, to make the payment for the sins of Saul. And I noted something here as I thought about this. Men often forget their covenant with God. Saul forgot his. But David, who typifies Christ for us in this passage, David typifies the Lord who never forgets his covenant with us. Aren't you glad to know that? Though men forget their covenant with God, God does not forget his covenant with us. And so these sons are sent. Look at verse 8. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bare unto Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth. This is not the same Mephibosheth now. This is not Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. This is Mephibosheth, the brother of Jonathan. 
And the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite. So here's Michael. If you remember Michael, she was the wife of David, but she was shut up, shut away from her husband. So how did she have five sons? Well, I believe the Bible gives us the explanation. She brought them up for Adriel. Adriel was married to Saul's daughter, Mirab, but it appears that Mirab has died. And so Michael is bringing up these boys in Mirab's place. And those boys are given over. And they're slain as a result of an act of justice to pay and atone for the sins of Israel against the Gibeonites. Well, when you walk away from this scene, do you feel like justice has been served? Or do you have a dilemma here? I think we have a dilemma, don't we? Seven boys are dead. How does this fix the problem? Human justice is imperfect. Sinful men are incapable of measuring out human justice. We live in a nation that has been reported to have the greatest justice system of any nation in the history of the world. I don't know that you could say that now. Our justice system has been perverted and twisted. But what was our justice system founded on? The laws of God. A few years ago, I I was able to take a tour of the Capitol, and our congresswoman, Virginia Fox, gave us a tour and took us on, took us into the Hall of Congress, into where the Congress assembles, and she began to point out the images on the wall, and she said, if you look right in the center and you see that, that face looking towards you, it's the face of Moses, the lawgiver. She said, it's a reminder that our laws, the laws that govern our land, are the laws that began with God and his word. But now our nation has rejected God and his word. And men are trying to carry out justice, and it depends on what group you're affiliated with, the way that you define it, and who you think should enact it. We're living in a time when justice is imperfect, but there is coming a time when the just one will rule and reign. Well, let me give you a third lesson we learned here, and that is that grief is immeasurable. Grief is immeasurable. Rizpah's two boys have been killed. Michael's five boys that she had apparently raised have been killed. These boys were hung up before the Lord. But notice in verse 10, Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth. That's something that mourners would do. They would clothe themselves in sackcloth and spread it for her upon the rock from the beginning of harvest until water dropped upon them out of heaven. Again, that's a period of months. And suffered neither the birds of the air to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night. 
You see, the greatest injustice that someone could uh, could suffer in that in that time in that culture would to have their uh, bodies be displayed and hung up and and to decompose and and to have the the beasts of the field and the birds of the air come and and and, and feast on their decomposing bodies. And this mother who had suffered the loss of her sons did not want her sons to suffer that reproach. So see her in her grief and in her devotion for her children. Night and day, scaring off in whatever capacity she had, and maybe she had helpers. No birds could land on those boys. Uh, No jackals could come and feast on their dead bodies. She's protecting them. What a lesson she provides for us. An example of how parents with children who have life but may be suffering from spiritual death because they do not know Jesus and how we ought to pray for the souls of our children, how we ought to pray for them earnestly, how we ought to cover them in our tears and in our prayers, and how we ought to do all that is in our power to protect them from the birds of the air who want to eat their flesh and the beasts of the field, especially the roaring lion who walketh about seeking whom he may devour. What an object of devotion she is. We see her grief, but then not only do we see her grief, think of the grief of the Gibeonites who had trusted in the nation of Israel and the God of Israel. They obviously knew the Lord by the language that they used here, and they had reverence for God, but now their king, King Saul, has turned against them and murdered them. Think of the grief of the Gibeonites. And then the grief of the Israelites. No doubt in three years of famine, people died. Losses were suffered. You see, we live in a world of grief. And no measure of human justice can assuage it. Then we learn a fourth lesson. And that is that compassion is indispensable. There's one thing we need in this sin-cursed world. We need compassion. And where will the world find it? Well, it should find it in the church. Christian people should be filled with compassion. David heard about what Rizpah did, and he sent his messengers to get the bones of Saul and his sons And then once they had returned with the bones of Saul and his sons from Jabesh Gilead, they took the bones of those boys and they buried them together, a proper burial, to honor them and to honor their memory. And they buried them in the land of Benjamin, which was the tribe, the land of their inheritance, in Zelah, in the sepulcher of Kish, who was the father of of King Saul. They received a proper burial, and there was some measure of comfort. There was some measure of compassion showed to Rizpah. Her efforts were not in vain. Her boys received a proper burial. You see, as we live in this unjust world, 
as we live in this angry, divisive world, we, we have to be, as Christians, very careful that we don't allow the spirit of anger to envelop us. Do you watch the news and find yourself getting angry? Do you talk to people who view life much differently than we who know Jesus view life in this world, and do you find yourself getting a little bit angry with them? You know, we better be careful or that spirit of Saul will overtake us and say, get rid of the Gibeonites. But we're not here to destroy men's lives. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy men's lives. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And how can we give the message of salvation and show the love of Christ to a a confused, uh, cold world unless we're filled with compassion? We have to be careful that the spirit of this age does not overtake us. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 17, let me read it for you, recompense to no man evil for evil. He's talking to Christians here. If you're mistreated, don't return it. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place under wrath. Don't get angry. Don't seek vengeance. That's what he's saying. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. There's coming a day when God's going to set everything straight. And if you're a believer, you have to trust in that. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. We're not going to help an angry, lost world by getting angry. We ought to pray for our governor. We ought to pray for those in powers of authority who differ from us. We ought to pray for them. The Bible tells us that we're commanded to pray for them. And in the same context of that command that we pray, the Bible speaks of this, that God will have all men to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You see, our prayers does more than our political action. Our Christian testimony can do more than any political machinery could ever accomplish. Let's get on our knees and let's pray and let's show the love of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Jude, writing on the doorstep of the coming of the Lord, said this. He said, and of some have compassion, making a difference. If you really want to make a difference in this lost world, then let's pray and let's show compassion and the love of Christ. Let's bring people to Jesus. Because there's no justice in an unjust world. But there is coming a day when there will be justice. By the way, how does the Lord deal with justice? Well, Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Let me tell you, the just one came and bore the wrath of God's judgment upon the unjust. 
All of the sins of humanity were rolled on him. He died on the cross and made the payment for our sin. And maybe you're here this morning and you don't know him as your savior. I want to say that God loves you and he sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to save you. He took the payment of your sin. He bore the judgment. The inescapable judgment of God has fallen on him. And if you'll come and receive him by faith today and recognize and confess to him that you're a sinner, he will save you and forgive you and clean you and give you a home in heaven. And that's what the world needs to hear. The just has suffered for the unjust. Peter said that he might bring us to God. And one day he's coming. John looked to that day in Revelation 21. And he said this in verse 4. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. When Jesus is ruling and reigning, he'll wipe away all tears from their eyes. There should be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. When Solomon ruled, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, and he said, I've lived a long time. He wrote Ecclesiastes as an old man, and he says, here's what I found out. I'll never figure out the way to fix all the problems in society. I can't make all the crooked ways straight. There's too much to deal with here. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The wisest king, perhaps the wisest human who ever lived, said, I cannot solve these problems. There's only one who can. His name is Jesus. And he is going to solve them. All grief will be assuaged. All tears wiped away. All suffering will be gone when Jesus rules and reigns. And if you know him as Savior, you'll be with him for all eternity. But if you reject him, the Bible says in verse 8 of Revelation 21, but the fearful and unbelieving and abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There's something worse living, something far worse than living in an unjust world. It's living in hell for all eternity, suffering. Jesus Christ is the one who can make it right. If you don't know him as Savior, I want you to come to him today. I want to invite you to do that. He loves you. He came to save you. Maybe you're a victim of injustice and you're wondering, well, when, is, when are they going to get what's coming to them? That's not your responsibility. Vengeance is mine. I will repay saith the Lord. By the way, before you wish justice on others, if you're a recipient of God's grace, then you're enjoying his mercy. Justice is the last thing we need. We need the mercy of God. And let's ask God to give us compassion. And let's comfort people in a grieving world. Thank you for listening. We pray that God has used his word to speak to you today. 
If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit us online at tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. There, you'll find additional information about our church, opportunities to partner with us financially, as well as other resources that we hope can be a help to you. May God bless you, and thank you once again for listening.